Let me tell you about our Jesus. Thank you, Ashley and choir and tech for that glorious song. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and indeed we thank you for your son, Jesus. As was the lyrics to this choral number, we were weary, we were enslaved to sin, being created in your image, tainted by the shackles of life and the corruption of this globe. Lord, we were far from you, but oh, Jesus, <laughs> your son provided a way. Lord, we're going to hear of that today as we go to Acts 2. Guide us in your word, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 37. If you've just joined us, we're moving through this book, and we're in Acts chapter 2. We're starting in verse 37. I want to thank the ladies leadership, Dorothy Gilbert, who's in charge of women's ministry, and Amy Flynn. I believe, ladies, you have an event this afternoon. Over 100 women have registered. So, uh, men, uh, take heed, I guess. You're, you're on deck, right? <laughs> Guarding the fort. And what a wonderful time. Also, we had a membership class last week. We've had people inquire. We had 17 family units at the membership class last Sunday. And if you're interested in becoming a member, you can see one of the folks at the front after the service or see me. But uh, the Lord is doing some great things from our newborns to the senior saints. Uh, we have a variety of ministries taking place, and I just want to thank all our volunteers. We've got an army that is serving, and thank you for doing that. I sometimes have to pinch myself. We're only three and a half years old, but my, what God has done, all be to his glory, correct? Well, Acts 2, we've been journeying through this. The Holy Spirit comes. We saw that in the first part of Acts as the apostles, the 120, at least the at least the 12, are speaking in foreign languages, dialects, as that spirit comes, bursts the church, and the crowd asks, what in the world is going on? <laughs> Logical question. And so Paul breaks out in the first sermon recorded in Scripture, that's verses, well, really starting verse 14 through verse 36. The crowd now is going to ask another question, and that starts in verse 37. Now, when they had heard this, they were acutely distressed and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do, brothers? Peter said to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, your children, and for all those who are far away. As many as the Lord our God will call to himself. With many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, Save yourselves from this perverse generation. So those who accepted the message were baptized and that day about 3,000 people were added. It's an interesting state of affairs. They've asked the question, why, what's going on here? Peter's answer that. And we see here the, the Holy Spirit is still working. It's not just having them speak foreign languages, but he's, he, the text tells us in verse 37, they're acutely distressed. If you have the King James, it's, it's pricked their hearts. Or the ESV is it the Holy Spirit has cut through to the heart. 
the Holy Spirit isn't just out here having this holy huddle with the 120 that were there in that room. And he's moved out and birthing the church. And we see that because by the end of this, we'll move to 3,000 souls who embrace the gospel. The word pricked or bring distress, it, it's a loaded term. It, it means to stab to the heart. It, it, it means sharp pain. It's often used of horse hooves that leave dents in the ground. <laughs> Many years ago, our neighbor's horses got out and they thought they could use our backyard as a pasture. And it was spring and there were divots everywhere. Looked worse than a novice at a golf course. It was awful, right? They left deep impressions and that's the idea here that the, the Holy Spirit has sunk down in is opening their ears and their eyes to what is true. Although we're speaking of a very deep emotional response, it's going to be used here in a favorable way because they're going to respond. It's like a wonderful piece of art or a beautiful poem or a gorgeous arrangement for the choir. It moves the heart, and that's the idea here. Heart is used. The Net Bible doesn't render the heart here. ESV does. And I think that's significant because it speaks of the sincerity and the depth of their response. In other words, the Holy Spirit has taken the words that Peter has given and he's delivered it and pierced as a laser beam into the very hearts of those that were listening. The old Scottish confession states, we are so dead, so blind, so perverse, that neither can we feel what we are pricked, see the light when it shines, nor assent to the will of God when it's revealed, except when the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quickens that which is dead, removes the darkness from our minds, and bows our stubborn wills to the obedience of the blessed gospel. The Holy Spirit must convict of sin. And my, this crowd, what have they been told? You are the ones who crucified Jesus. <laughs> Whoa. The, the, the heaviness of what has just been delivered and the judgment, mentioning Joel 2 that we talked about last week, is weighing on their hearts as the Spirit is moving. No wonder the Lord told the disciples, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. I will move through you and in you. You know, there's a couple implications for us who know Jesus as our Savior this morning. As you engage your classmates, your fellow employees, your coworker, your friend, a family member, there's a couple things to remember here as we look at this text. First of all, only the Holy Spirit can bring life to those who are dead in sin. I don't care how eloquent you are, how wonderful you package and tie the bow on the gospel, or how spiritual you might appear. <laughs> it's the Holy Spirit that has got to prick the hearts. Oh, granted, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing which is preached, that's Romans 10, which, by the way, means we have to be sharing the good news. But at the end of the day, our witnessing will not save souls any more than raising the dead by touching their forehead. It is the role of the Spirit, not us, to do the true convicting, the convincing, and converting. The evangelist D.L. Moody in the 1800s states, there's not a better evangelist in the world than the Holy Spirit. <laughs> He's spot on. And I don't know about you, but that's great comfort, isn't it? 
You share Christ with someone and say, oh, I wish I had said it this way. I should have thought of that Bible verse. Yes, there's a place for evangelism training and developing, but ultimately the Holy Spirit has it. You know, Peter, yes, the Holy Spirit was moving through him. It, it, it's not Peter's words that are going to change lives. I'm always shocked at liberal churches. It's not the Reader's Digest type sermon that's going to change lives. It's this. And the day that we neglect this, <laughs> we're in trouble. And that is great comfort that the Holy Spirit is the one. We mustn't fear of saying the right thing or not saying what... The Holy Spirit's got it. And that leads us to a second application here in that the Holy Spirit provides the source of all power. That's a clear awareness of his, our dependence on him. First Corinthians, the great apostle Paul, who charged hell, you know, done it all. He says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with superior eloquence or wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony of God. That's saying something. He was a student of students. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. But he says, I decided to be concerned about nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him being crucified as I was with you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. Wow, this is Paul. He says, my conversation, my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but listen to what he says, with the demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not be based on human wisdom but the power of God. Remember, this is ultimately all the Holy Spirit. He goes before us. He works in the hearts who do not know the gospel. Let me give you a challenge. There's a rack that's on the um, welcome table with tracks on the good news. Let me challenge you to grab one of those this week. As you go out the door, there's plenty there. And, and ask the Lord to just, Lord, let the Spirit work in me with one person. Just give me one person to share that good news. Perhaps it's someone you've already shared Christ with before and you need to do a little bit of follow-up and tell them you're praying for them. When I say that, I suspect there's some in this room that are growing really sweaty, <laughs> a little uncomfortable. Remember, it's the role of the Holy Spirit. Relax. Prayerfully depend on the Lord, certainly be bold, but watch for the Holy Spirit to act. And here's Peter. Peter's delivering this message in front of thousands of people, and the Holy Spirit says, I got this. And we see this. And notice what Peter says upon responding to what should we do. Peter, in boldness through the power of the Spirit, says to them, repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Christ because of the forgiveness of your sins. Verse 36, turn back to verse 36. Verse 36 is the theological conclusion of Peter's sermon. It states, therefore let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. That's the theological conclusion. And now we get to this verse here in verse, verse 38 which serves as the application of the sermon. Repent, be baptized, and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Three things that are highlighted, two things are given, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Now, just a little side note, and I was thinking much through this as we present the gospel to a world that we live in today, and I've seen the, 
I remember a group when I was at Dallas Seminary, they were standing on the sidewalks with these big signs, repent, you know, judgment's at hand. And certainly we need to be calling for repentance. But Peter's audience, let's keep in mind, understood that they were in God's eye, who they were in God's eyes, they were his chosen race, that he had made promises to them. And all of this Peter had rehearsed with them as well in the previous verses. However, I'm going to argue in a world in which we live, in a post-Christian society, our approach, yes, must entail repentance. I'm not saying that. Or the need for forgiveness of sins. We'll get to that in a minute. But I think our conversation needs to resemble more Paul in Acts 17, where he's engaging citizens of Athens, individuals with no Judeo-Christian mindset. There, there's, there's no hooks to hang the material on. And when he engages the citizens of Athens, and we'll get to that, we're going to look at that text on Easter, he, says, he addresses men and women who not, nothing of the Old Testament. And so what does he do? He doesn't take them to Genesis 3, that were fallen creatures. He takes them to Genesis 1. We've got a God who creates. The day and age which we live, I, I think our story needs to begin with a triune God, a God who, that has created the beauty of humanity that has been made in God's image and that we belong to something far bigger than ourselves. I mean, think about the questions that people are asking today. They're not the same as 1970s. And they're not the same as 1950s. They are different. And you, you listen to what our world is asking. Why am I here? These are some of the top questions. Why am I here? What's going to happen to me eventually? Who can I trust? No one. Politicians, the medical industry. I mean, who can I trust? Media? There's no one. These are the questions. These are the things that are being raised. To begin with repent, rather than being created, it's like handing someone a book and ripping out the first chapter. We need to take this, the gospel message is one of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. It's exactly what Paul does in Acts 17, as he addresses a, a world that knows nothing of a Judeo-Christian mindset. He takes them first to creation. He does get to repentance. We'll get to that in a minute. That's key. And I think this approach, this understanding, going back to Genesis 1, will also assist us in engaging our world we love a person because they're made in the image of God. We recognize that this person, despite their failures, their, fel their falling short, has the potential under the grace of God to be something that they have not been. We can either think about who they are currently and get stuck there, especially in the crazy world we live in today, or we can think about the possibility of what God can do with that person. And I think that will change the way we relate to others. One recent pastor, theologian, states, the Lord is coming as the justice commissioner to sort out the mess of this world. And sure, you don't want to be on the wrong side of that, so I, I want you to step back, he states. You know what? I want God to come and sort out this mess. Isn't that what our world wants? So there's going to be a harmony in this world where there's a breakdown. There's going to be justice where there's injustice, there's going to be peace where there's violence, and there's a match between the truth of God's word and the beauty we long for. So yes, Peter, in the context of Acts 2 at Pentecost, can jump right to repent, but I think we got to take, we got to dial the story back just a bit in the world that we live. 
and understand the truths of Genesis 1. It's establishing the truth of creation that we can address then the fall, how we are tainted, and the need for restoration through redemption. Now, you don't have to agree with me, but we'll get to Acts 17 and hopefully that will shed more light. But in doing that, then we come to the topic of repentance. We bring people up to speed where they already are here in Acts 2. And that's when Paul says, or Peter says, repent. Repentance is a genuine and a wholehearted change of mind. And it entails not just lip service. Talk is cheap. It's talking about action that coincides with our speech. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets summoned Israel to turn or to return they expected that not only did you give lip service to Yahweh, but you forsake, forsook your wicked ways. Ezekiel 33, listen to this text. Suppose I say to the wicked, you must surely die. But he turns from his sin and does what is right. He returns what was taken and pledged. He pays back what's stolen, follows the statutes, committing no iniquity. He will surely live. None of the sins he's committed will be counted against him. He has done what is just and is right. And Luke uses the term repentance frequently in, in his writings to describe not only the content, but also how one should respond to the offer of forgiveness. The term includes all aspects of conversion, I would argue. And notice the call isn't just for the Jewish people to repent the call is for all people, and this is where Paul then gets, when he's speaking to that group in, in Athens who have no Judeo-Christian mindset, he's talked about God as a creator, he brings it down and he states then in Acts 17, God has overlooked your ignorance, but now commands all people everywhere to what? Repent. He gets there. It's important. Without repentance, there is no salvation because he has said a day on which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he designated, having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. There it is. So repentance is vital in this story. It's essential for the gospel, essential to salvation. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, repentance stresses the starting point of the need for forgiveness, whereas faith is the resulting trust and understanding that this forgiveness comes from God, the one turned to for the gift. So the call is for all to repent, as you see here in verse 38, look back at the text, and for each person to individually participate in baptism. And notice it's in baptize what? In the name of Jesus Christ. This is vital. The Jews of the day also baptized. It's to distinguish what's going on over here. There is a new allegiance that has been given. There's a new identity that has been placed. And so it is vital. Now the next phrase is problematic. <laughs> and it says, baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What is the text saying here? Is baptism part of what is required for one's salvation? Let me give you several reasons why I do not believe that is the case here in the text. The rendering of the preposition here could be in order to be forgiven or for the forgiven. Another way to render it would be because. 
Because you've been forgiven, be baptized. Sins are forgiven as a result of faith in Christ, not as a result of baptism. Otherwise, I would argue it's faith and works, which Scripture clearly does not teach. Baptism is not mentioned in Peter's other sermons, which is interesting. When the Holy Spirit comes on Cornelius, what text we'll look at down the road, they were, that happened before they were baptized. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see that repentance is directly linked with the forgiveness of sins. Luke 24 states that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name. There's no mention of baptism. Baptism was the proof, I'm talking about water baptism, was the proof of the sincerity of their repentance and the faith, but it's also a public identification, which is key, especially in the first century world. Even, I have a dear friend who left the Islam, became a believer, and he said, you know, trust in Christ is one thing, but when I was publicly baptized, that's when persecution really started. Because I now have made a stand. And that's the idea here. In the New Testament, they, they seldom distinguish. You, you place your faith in Christ, and there's an assumption you're immediately going to be baptized. Because it's a testimony to the world of your allegiance to the Lord. And baptism portrays a washing and signifies what repentance produces. And that's a cleansing. So hopefully that clarifies. Again, it should be repent each one of you. Be baptized in the name of Christ because of the forgiveness of of your sins, and you will receive a gift. Of course, the question this morning is, have you been baptized? <laughs> uh, that is, if you had a baptism where the world, you're telling the world, I have repented of my sins and I'm identifying with Christ. That's why I have a problem with infant baptism. You can't do that as an infant. It's later, as believers, followers of Christ, that we identify. In Acts 2, it was a command for all believers so if you've not been baptized, we would love to participate in you following in that command. And we've got a couple of folks that will be standing on both sides of this, of this platform after the service. I'd love to talk to you on that act of obedience. Well, notice what the text says. It's not just that this forgiveness, but you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is highlighted here. <laughs> what a gift, correct? Yeah. It's been modeled for them to see earlier in Acts 2, and they will get to participate in it. The core of the gospel is the offer of the gift of the Spirit and what the Spirit provides to the one who believes. Then Peter is not done. He says in verse 39, for the promise is for you. What is the promise? I think it's twofold. It's the forgiveness of sins, and it's the Spirit. That promise, for those who repent, <laughs> your sins are forgiven, you have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This promise he makes, notice it's not just for you, but for your children who repent, and for all, and I think the immediate context is for all the Jews who are scattered abroad that aren't here for Pentecost this day. It's only in Acts 10 that Peter begins to realize, oh, and it's not just for the Jews that are scattered abroad, it's also for Gentiles. So we're going to see that as we move through the birth of this church, establishment of the church through the book of Acts. And, and again, I think there's an echo of Isaiah 57 that talks about there's a day when those far away will be brought into the fold. 
And notice it says, for all those who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. <laughs> Don't miss the latter part of verse 39. God's direction, he's overseeing this entire process. Here is call on the Lord for salvation, and the Lord calls on them. Our responsibility is not to figure out, did the Lord call me? My responsibility is, have I called on him? But at the end of the day, it's the Lord who is moving. And, and this fits so well with the context. Remember the Old Testament text that Paul recites at the beginning of his sermon? Look back at verse 17. Verse 16, he says, now the prophet Joel. And he talks about this prophet of Joel. And then he says in verse 21, and then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Later on in Joel 2, the whole context, it states, it will so happen that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who survive just as the Lord has promised. The remnant will be for those whom the Lord will call. It's the whole context here. Joel, has what you have seen was foreshadow, understood, and you're seeing this in our midst, Peter is stating, as the Spirit moves among us. And so, in verse 40, he says, save yourselves from this perverse generation. Be saved in light of the, it's interesting that the word here is crooked. It's ethically corrupt. It's spiritually bankrupt, this culture. It's interesting, the term generation, there are several scholars who believe that is actually a reference to the rebellious generation during the time of the Exodus, the wilderness generation. The ones that rebelled, Keener in his commentary says, Peter points to an exhortation to that wilderness generation, to the audience that he's speaking to, and says, don't harden your hearts like that group did over there, as the ancestors did in the wilderness. Psalm 95. Do not be stubborn, the text tells us, like they were at Meribah. Remember, that's when they complained about H2O, not enough water, uh, that mess, and... Unfortunately, Moses responded and struck the rock twice. Like they were at the day of Massa, they complained in there. Uh, wine, 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 right? Where your ancestors challenged my authority. This is the Lord speaking in Psalm 95. And tried my patience, even though they had seen my work for 40 years. I was continually disgusted with that generation. And I say these people desire to go astray. They do not obey my commands. So I make a vow in my anger. They will never enter into the resting place I've set for them. Social and ethical misconduct, which is rooted in ungodliness and unbelief. And Peter is stating, don't be like that generation. Repent. <laughs> Turn to the Lord. Be careful. Save yourselves. And there in your notes, I have a comment. Understanding the facts of the gospel... That is all people have sinned, that the penalty for our sin is death, that Jesus died to pay that penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead. He's alive. Knowing all that, that's not enough for salvation. That, that means nothing. There must be a personal response to the gospel. I've mentioned this before. My advisor back in Aberdeen, a New Testament scholar, she knows the Greek far better than most <laughs> seminary trained men and women in the States. It was unbelievable. But she does not believe Jesus is God. She could walk you through the gospel presentation found in the New Testament, but she has never personally embraced it. 
And Peter is saying, you must embrace this. And so I say this morning, I would dare say there's a few sitting here or watching online. You've not responded to the gospel. In fact, you probably are asking the same questions I raised earlier. Why am I here? What's going to happen to me? Who can I trust? <laughs> Let me remind you that the God who created this universe created you in his image. Wow. Yes, that image has been tainted by doing or being that which God did not intend for us. And we live in a world that has also been marred by sin and it has its effects on us as well. But God has entered time and space by sending his son Jesus to pay for the price of our crud on the cross. We are called to repent and believe in his name. And think about it. Have you considered the consequences if you don't repent? If you reject this Jesus? <laughs> That's what Peter was stating earlier when he mentioned the latter part of Joel. That there's a day coming when God will judge. This whole reference that they're a perverse generation or a crooked generation is all under the, under the understanding this group is going to be judged. You need to take heed. It's been marred and we're called to repent. Do you, have you thought of your own true nature? When no one's looking and you're staring at the mirror at night, what do you see? What does death lead you to? It's not a journey's end. You're not gonna come back as a butterfly or as my art teacher in high school thought she was reincarnated from Moses. That is not gonna happen. <laughs> There's only two options. The text is clear. Turn to the one who can remove the guilt, free you from the shackles of sin, bring peace, joy, and hope into an intimate relationship with him, the one who created you, the one who loves you, the one who made you in his image. You say, well, Hophidus, you don't know all that I've done. He does, and he still died for you. Well, Hophidus, I don't know. It's just, I, I, just so, hey, turn to the Lord. Let the Holy Spirit work in your life. Let, he, let him bring that forgiveness that you have longed for. For as Peter noted, judgment is looming. It's imminent. Second Peter is clear. The Lord wishes none that should perish. But that doesn't mean this, this astrological tick, bomb is ticking. It is ticking. We're nearing the end. Well, look at verse 41. It says, so those who accepted that message were baptized. So there it is. They've embraced. They've repented. They've received the forgiveness. And now they make a public statement. Yes, I've been baptized. I identify with him. And my goodness, 3,000. Talk about church growth and talk about a lot of, uh, you're going to have to have a team ready, right? You move from 120 to 3,000. Think about this. Many in that 3,000 were the very ones that cried, crucify him. They were the ones that were there. And Peter already told them, you're the ones who crucified Jesus. By the way, not just them. <laughs> he died for our sake. It's our sin that put him on the cross. So we might as well have been there, crucify him. Thank the Lord he did. He paid the price for us. But we're not holier than the group that was standing there. Crucify him away. Take him away. Give us Barabbas. 
There were many there in the crowd who said, ah, this isn't the Holy Spirit. They're not speaking foreign language. They're drunk. So they're downplaying the role of the Spirit. Their thinking, their actions, their outlook were all changed. Change that baffles our understanding and defies analysis. Why? Because the text is clear. What does the text tell us in verse 37? The Holy Spirit acutely, accurately pricked their hearts. That's why there's change. Ephesians 2 says we were dead to God. We were enslaved to sin. In verse 4 it says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love for which he loved us, even though we were dead in offenses, no corpse gets out of a coffin. None. You can perform all you want. You're not going to raise that dead. We were dead in sin. You can do whatever you want. Write the biggest check to the church. Serve wherever. That's not going to do it. It's got to be a coming to a recognition. I need God's forgiveness. I must repent of my sin and I believe. And it says even though we were dead in offenses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. He has raised us up with him. He's seated with him to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of grace and kindness towards in Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. And thank the Lord. Right? God's gracious plan, this is the bottom of your notes, a plan to bring many people to a saving knowledge of him began, don't miss this, in eternity past. You know this. I've said it but before God placed the mountains, thought of Bobo's, he was thinking of you. It began in eternity past, and I love this, it continues through eternity future. That leaves me with three things this morning. One, God creating the world was great, but far greater is our redemption. He spoke the world into existence, but he chose to send his son who had to have his arms stretched out to shed his blood on our behalf. Wow. Why did he do that? Because he loved you. It's what John 3, 16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God does not declare, declare do, but he himself declared it is finished. Our response is simply to repent and be forgiven there's no formula. There's no set of guidelines, prerequisites, or ongoing stipulations. For as the scriptures state, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. There it is. And God extends salvation to all of us. And listen to this. In the past, he removes sin's penalty. In the present, salvation frees us from sin's power. And in the future, a salvation will be seen from sin's presence. So salvation from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and ultimately sin's presence. Repent. <laughs> if you don't know Christ today, today is the day. Repent. Understand this forgiveness that can be yours and the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit and all that comes with it. If you've repented of your sins and you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you know what depths you were brought. <laughs> the refuge you now have in Christ and the hope that is found in him. You understand these things. And yet, 
It's so easy to forget it, isn't it? Life goes on its way. We, we're eating the baklava, you know, until something tragic hits, and then we, we go back to rehearsing. But for the most part, we move on our way and forget. And that's what I love about communion. It's an opportunity where we can rehearse the truths. We mustn't lose sight or forget the great links that were taken to bring us forgiveness and to give us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Remember Peter's sermon. He says, hey, God foreordained that his son would die on a cross. And so communion serves as a vivid reminder of what it took in order for us to be forgiven. This ordinance, just as as baptism is designated for those who've placed their faith in Christ, who understand that they have repented of their sins and have a relationship with him. It's also communion is designed for those who are seeking to walk in holiness, not walking in sin. That's not allowed according to 1 Corinthians 11. And so as the elders come and find a seat on the front here, the elders and deacons, I thought it would be good that we could spend some time as the musicians play and the elements are distributed just to examine our own hearts. How's your tongue? <laughs> How's your spiritual attitude, your character, or your actions? So spend some time reflecting on this before the Lord as we distribute the elements. <laughs>